Photo Code, the Australian Computer Museum Society podcast. Season 2, Episode 6. I'm Riley Tipton Perry. Melanie Swalwell is Professor of Digital Media Heritage in the Centre for Transformative Media Technologies at Swinburne University. Melanie's research focuses on digital artefacts like video games and media artworks. She's published a number of books and been involved in many projects in her field. Today we'll be discussing her latest book, Homebrew Gaming and the Beginnings of Vernacular Digitality from MIT Press. Before we start, I'm going to give clues to a mystery thing. It's an object or concept mentioned in the interview. Have a guess and I'll reveal the answer at the end of the show. Okay, now on to the interview. Hello, Melanie Swalwell. Hi, Riley. You've worked on game-related topics before publishing your book. What are some highlights? I initially did a case study on land gaming in the nine in the late 1990s as a part of my PhD that I did at University of Technology in Sydney. And uh, then I went to New Zealand uh, for my first full-time academic job in the early 2000s. And um, because of that work, I was asked to do some background research for a museum that was interested in the history um, kind of science and art, I suppose, of, um, of computer gaming. And uh, this was at Tamanua Museums in Palmerston North. They were thinking of putting together an exhibition for their th- three-part museum. They have like a... Uh, an art gallery, a social history, um, and a science centre. And uh, they particularly wanted me to look into the local history of gaming in New Zealand. So I started with the help of some amazing collectors and found an incredible world of locally manufactured or partial hybrid kind of products that were partly uh, locally manufactured uh, in New Zealand in the 1980s. So that is really how I fell into this area of, uh, of working on game and computer histories. And, yeah, some of the stuff that we turned up in that project was pretty amazing. So when you first started researching in the field, what games were people playing and what were they doing with this technology? At the time, it was 1999 when I first went along to a LAN in Sydney um, and most people at that time were playing Quake 2. I was more interested in the uh, sort of social and cultural aspects of people bringing their computers into a space for a temporary kind of period and, and networking them in order to play against each other, with and against each other, you know, multiplayer games. At that time, of course, uh, it wasn't really possible in Australia to be doing that um, from home because our internet was uh, so poor uh, and so there was this flourishing, this kind of moment when um, these uh, LAN parties uh, or LAN events brought people um, together and they lugged their computers along, you know, for the day or for the weekend and set them up in often a hired space and it was just a fascinating 
uh, insight into something I really knew very little about at that time and uh, I guess an introduction also to the the whole field of social engagement mediated by technology. So, you know, it was quite strong opposite example, I suppose, or alternate example to the, the stereotype of, you know, computer gamers locked away in their homes playing games, you know, not getting out and socialising. Here, computer games were the reason that people were actually packing up their gear and taking it to a common space in order to play in a very social way. Yeah, I, my first degree was in sociology and so I just found this an amazing example and, and, and so rich. What can you tell us about the Play It Again project? We turned up some really incredible uh, material in doing this background research for Tamanua. And after thinking about it for a while, I um, approached several museums and libraries and, and inquired as to whether they were interested in collecting any of it or whether, in fact, they already were uh, because this was uniquely New Zealand content, unlike games found elsewhere in the world in many cases. And with very few exceptions, um, everybody said no. They said no in a range of ways. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I had this fun conversation with Te Papa asking them if they were interested in collecting games and they told me, no, 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 games are publications. You should go and talk to the National Library. And so I talked to the National Library and they said, no, 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 games are material artefacts. Go and talk to Te Papa. And so it was the case that at that point games were really falling between the cracks of um, institutional mandates uh, because they didn't see that they belonged in either one institution. In fact, they belonged in all the institutions, but, you know, it was a bit of a, um, a political thing about who was going to put their hand up and, and take that first step. And, of course, one of the things that was scaring people about putting their hand up and taking the first step towards collecting digital games was the preservation challenges. There was a feeling at that time uh, that in the 2000s that, you know, if one institution was to put their hand up, everybody else would heave a sigh of relief and go, oh, good, they're going to take care of it. We don't have to. And so sensing this reluctance, I decided after having had a visit from um, a colleague of mine from the Berlin Computer Spiel Museum, Andreas Lange, then the director, in 2005, he came out. Uh, I got a team of people together from my university and decided that we would have a crack at trying to come up with some of the solutions to some of the challenges of collecting and preserving digital games. And so we did a, a small software preservation pilot uh, with the software that was written locally in New Zealand for the Sega SC3000 computer, of which collectors had uh, amassed a really incredible amount, hundreds of titles, and um, we worked with that. And that ultimately led into, when I came back to Australia, into the first Play It Again Game History and Preservation Project, which was funded by the Australian Research Council as a linkage project in conjunction with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and what was then the New Zealand Film Archive, now known as Natalna Sound and Vision. And so in that project we worked on uh, solving some of the, the challenges and, and documenting some of the history for 
games that were written locally in Australia and New Zealand during the 1980s for a range of different microcomputers. Uh, so that was um, really a highlight, I suppose, of some of my um, early research on digital games. Uh, the uh, SE3000, uh, that's the New Zealand version of it. Was it a John Sands Sega SE3000? Yes, in New Zealand it was distributed by Grandstand. Okay, gotcha. And in Australia it was distributed by John Sands. Okay. And the reason there, there was so much software locally written was because it went to very few other English-speaking countries, well, none that I know of. So it was distributed in um, France, and obviously it was a Japanese computer, um, but, yeah, not much software came for it. And so Grandstand were publishing software on tape typically uh, for it. And, um, yeah, there's quite a significant catalogue. The list of games that you've got, there's about 800, is that, that's Australian and New Zealand games, eight or 900 from, uh, it's, I guess it's the 80s and is it half of the 90s or is it the 80s and 90s that the, the catalogue covers? The spreadsheet of software that I shared with you for the museum comes from the Play It Again project. Uh, so the first iteration of that project, we tried to document all the microcomputer games that we could find evidence for in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and then we went through and we targeted certain games for collection. In Australia, we came up with uh, more than 700 titles. And in New Zealand, we came up with more than 200 titles. So altogether, yeah, in excess of 900 game titles written for microcomputers. Yeah, it's a great list. So I, I took that list and I've added, I'm pretty sure I'm sharing the spreadsheet with you, I've added about another 1,000, 1,100 or something from more, uh, more recent Australian releases anyway. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder how many in total have been released in Australia and New Zealand since 1979, 1980. It's got to be maybe a 3,000. I mean, this is one of the problems. We don't actually know uh, because game history has uh, not been really esteemed or, and, and it's one of the, the most poorly documented aspects of screen culture. So in a way, we're starting from scratch doing this kind of, this kind of documentary exercise. Um, when I uh, first started working on this in New Zealand, I set up uh, what we call the Early New Zealand Software Database and invited people to tell us what they knew about locally written software. In Australia, together with my colleague Denise DeVries, uh, we sort of morphed this into an Australasian heritage software database in an attempt to document more of the history of locally written software. The knowledge is out there. You know, people know what was created not everything, of course, but, you know, people know. But typically the, the knowledge hasn't been recorded and it certainly isn't held within uh, institutions. So I think that's, you know, a really important role that the Australian Computer History Museum can play, um, sorry, Museum Society can play uh, in, uh, in gathering some of this knowledge from the public. I started buying them, anything that I could find on eBay. So I've got around... Uh, together with donations of games or games that we've got on loan from people, we have around 200 from that list so far. Uh, it's it's not impossible that we can get, you know, 50% or may, maybe even more. 
So it, just seeing all of that Australian software in one place in its original boxed form is is, is great. I, I don't think anyone has done anything like that before. So using your list and uh, you know list various listings on eBay uh, has allowed us to short, sort of put that all in one place, which is it's quite quite astounding to see given our you know Australia and New Zealand small population. Okay, I'll go on to the next question. What can you tell us about the Game History series of books? What's to come? I, I'm not really sure what's to come, actually. I, I, I've known Henry Lowood and Rayford Gwynne, who are the series editors, for quite some years. I think I first met Henry Lowood. Gee. I'm not quite sure, at least back in the 2000s. He is the uh, curator for history of science and technology collections and film and media at Stanford University Libraries in, in California. They have a, a significant interest in both archival and software materials related to the history of, of technology and computing obviously being right there in downtown Silicon Valley. And so they set this up and the first title came out in the series in 2016 and my book is, I think, number five in the series. And, yeah, it's really great to have a book series dedicated to scholarly accounts of game history uh, published by a major publisher, a major academic publisher, that is MIT Press. It shows that, you know, this area of scholarship is maturing and it's going to go places. It's one of the most exciting areas, I think, of, of game studies and computer history at the moment, for sure. Can you define homebrew for us? I came up with a definition for homebrew that had five elements, and they're not meant to be necessarily prescriptive or hard and fast, but the game titles that I was interested in looking at that I felt came under this heading had five, typically had five characteristics. And they were, first of all, that homebrew productions were made in domestic space rather than any kind of institutional space, so they were made at home. Secondly, homebrew game creators were typically self-taught. They, they learnt how to program themselves. Um, they weren't you know, re- the recipients of formal training. Homebrew games, thirdly, were usually made by one person Next, they were often not published, but if they were published, it was typically on quite a small scale, distribution remaining quite local. Uh, That was not always the case. Again, some of the edge cases are quite interesting to consider and I go into them in some detail in the book. And fifth, that um, homebrew games are characterised by what I think of as an experimental ethic. You know, creators were trying things out and, and trying to see what was possible to do with the technology and their skills. So uh, that leads me to the next question. What, uh, what does vernacular digitality mean and what's the main premise of the book? Okay, so um, it's really about everyday life. When microcomputers enter the home, that is really the beginning of um, a digital life, if you like, for um, most people. Yes, there had been computers in labs and computers in universities and research settings and banks and that kind of thing, but 
everyday people, ordinary people, didn't really have any contact with computers in any real sense until microcomputers started to become available. And so the book's really about, you know, how computers enter into the home, how they are domesticated, how they become familiar, and games are a significant vehicle for the way in which this happens because, of course, in playing a game, you are becoming familiar with the technology. It, it's something that you become comfortable with as you, as you master uh, what the game requires you to do. So I'm thinking of this really as a quite a significant historical shift towards our lives being um, organised by the logic of the digital. This is something that was a transitional period. Um, it's not like it happened, you know, on the, a certain day, everything switched over. Of course it wasn't, you know, and for a long time analogue and digital ways of living were coexisting. But I think it's quite important, you know, and we think of it now as, as you know, we carry computers in our pockets and, and um, we, you know, we don't even have landlines in our homes anymore. Uh, telephony is almost entirely mobile and digital. Uh, I think it's quite important for us to remember, uh, you know, what the before times were like. And so homebrew as a moment you know, this moment when people are first getting computers and figuring out what they're good for and what they can do with them is a is a really nice moment to, to start to think about this as the beginning of a vernacular digitality when everyday people kind of start to embrace the digital. Yeah, there really was a, a, a homebrew culture as the kind of the main driving force, I think, in microcomputer gaming. I mean, we're, we're currently working on a project uh, to run on the original hardware. Richard Garriott's, uh, Richard Garriott wrote uh, the Ultima series and then Akala Beth before that. But before releasing Akala Beth in 1979, uh, he went through uh, many versions of what he called computer D&D, so Dungeons and Dragons for a computer, uh, and... We've got the source code for uh, the first, the, the first sort of version that he ran out of many versions, and that's version number one. So it's D&D &D 1. It was written in 1977, and it uh, was running apparently on a PDP-11 with an ASR-33 teletype, uh, but we're finding it hard to actually run it on that hardware, so we're not quite sure what the the uh, special circumstances were. And Vivian asked, asked uh, Richard Garrett himself, and he can't remember either. So it, uh, that, to me, Richard Garriott was, was one of the first, if not the first, to do it that way. And I think he very much belongs in this sort of homebrew club. And he, you know, he graduated from, from homebrew to, to having his own games company and such. But yeah, very much a homebrew type. An omission in the history of Australian computing and computing globally is the history of kit computers in Australia. It's like, uh, for computer historians, it's like 1974 to 1984 is a black spot. But I think we're now further enough from that time that it becomes something that people want to talk about as being a vintage period and romanticise and stuff. So it's a 
it's a good opportunity for people like yourself to to look at look at what was happening at that time and write about it because there's really not much that's good online or you know in articles and stuff is that the kit computers what 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 can you tell us about uh, how they were used in Australia in the early days there's a really interesting history of kit computers that probably many of your listeners might be aware of the first one that I uh, mention in the book is the Educ 8 that Jamison Rowe does a series in Electronics Australia, I think it is, on. And it's about a it's about a ten part series with all the schematics and you know what you'll need in order to build this. And I saw an educate in Adelaide where I used to live and work that Philip Cosent, computer collector, created and uh, he brought it into a meeting one day and, and fired it up and it was wonderful. Of course, the, the really well-known one is the Micro-B, um, which later was sold as a uh, fully built computer, but initially was uh, advertised in, I think, the 1983, 1983, does that sound right? Your Computer magazine uh, for purchase. Look, there's a range of kit computers in the history of computing. Um, you know, the Heath kit is another one, a hobbyists' involvement with the Altair. It's there, and yet... It, it doesn't seem to me that very many computer historians have been particularly curious about the, I guess, the hobbyist element that's involved here in wanting to get your hands dirty, in soldering things together, in trying out different add-ons and modifications and um, computer projects. And I think, you know, that's been a shame that that avenue hasn't been discussed more. Uh, perhaps it has been, it is more recognised in Europe, it's been pointed out to me, uh, rather than in the anglo um, American tradition. I'm not sure why that is, but we tend to, uh, well, anyway, from, from looking at the primary source materials, as I did, going through old electronics magazines, etc., it's very clear to me that when microprocessors came out, they were something that electronics hobbyists had to understand. They just needed to get their heads around it. And so, you know, that was an existing hobbyist market if you like, for um, microcomputers to, to be marketed to and, and they were embraced by that community. And so there's a really interesting series of, of crossovers between electronics hobbyists and, and you know, the, the nascent, I suppose, microcomputer culture. Yeah, I, I remember talking to Graham Phillipson about kit computers and he told us that he was planning to do another series of books on the history of computing in Australia. And I know he started on that. And he told me personally that he was going to cover kit computers uh, in this new series of books. Uh, so I'll be, I'll be interested to look through his notes if, if we can get, get hold of them. Uh, but yeah, we did, discuss, uh, we did discuss making that part of an official history series. And he, he himself had said, yes, that's a, a definite omission that should be, uh, should be changed. That, and that, that the history that that history from seventy four to to eighty that kind of time period was was incredible in that yeah the the home computer or the homebrew user uh, was responsible for for building pretty much the, the microcomputer for the eighties so yeah it's very very interesting uh, so onto a so onto something else there's the theoretical framework you've used for your research is very interesting. I wonder if you can 
uh, briefly tell us what that framework is for homebrew gaming and the beginnings of vernacular digitality? Sure. I um, come from a cultural studies and media studies background. And one of the theorists who has been very influential historically in cultural studies is um, Michel de Sateau. He wrote a couple of books uh, called The Practice of Everyday Life in the late 70s, early 80s. The first one was translated in 1984 into English, and so it got quite heavy use in cultural studies. It's largely about writing and reading and I am actually a bit more interested in the second volume, which didn't get translated until I think 1989 or something. It's where all the examples, the really lovely concrete examples of how people use things get elaborated. So there's a whole um, focus that from one of um, de Soto's collaborators, Luce Giard, where she talks about cooking and about how people learn to cook and about how cooking traditions are passed on from, you know, generation to generation or how somebody just decides to try something and they experiment and um, they don't quite have that ingredient to hand so they substitute something else or they don't quite have that tool that they require and so they just make do and use something else. And, and it's a lovely evocative description of cooking. And I saw a lot of parallels here with programming from the accounts that my homebrew creator informants um, shared with me that often when they were teaching themselves to code, they would, you know, just change one thing and see what would happen. And in a way, you know, that was part of the their autodidactic journey of them teaching themselves how to program. And so that's part of the theoretical framework. There's a lovely phrase that's very evocative that Desoto uses, and that is that we really don't know uh, much about the uses to which people put products. And so he encourages people to look at the uses that are made of products by consumers who are not producers. So there's this idea of consumption as being generative. You know, it's not like uh, consumption that we think of in consumer capitalism. It's, it's use, how you use things and what the products of that use are. And so people's use of microcomputers to program and to see what they could do with a microcomputer in the early days produced these homebrew games. So that's the, the kind of core insight that I draw on in the book. It's odd that people haven't looked at it that way before and there's not more written about it. The idea comes, it gets quite a lot of use in um, fan studies. So people who write about what fans of a particular TV show, for instance, or a particular film or film series, what they do, they, they have used this idea quite heavily to uh, reflect on fans' consumption and how they, you know, then go out and they make their own scene or they make their own website and particularly um, around the growth of the internet and people setting up message boards or, you know, uh, web pages, web rings, etc., and right on into the the web 2.0 kind of generative, a whole lot of fan cultural practices are recognised as being very uh, highly generative. But it seemed to me that 
this all seemed to start pretty much when people drew on these ideas from the Satoe's first book uh, through a important fan studies theorist whose name is Henry Jenkins. He did a thing, he, did, he wrote a book called Textual Poachers where he draws on this theoretical framework quite heavily. But it seemed to me that there were important bits missing and it was important to go back and actually look at this second book that hadn't then been translated at the time. And there are insights that we can, that we can, it's, it's, you know, worth going back to and revisiting at a time when these ideas have now become permeated throughout the fan and kind of media studies, cultural studies uh, sphere. Yet they don't recognize the early digital making that people engaged in when the digital first became available. So that's really some of the work that this book is doing. I mean, I was born in 1972 and I got my first computer when I was about 10. Uh, so from 1982 to 1992, the main way I learned about the black arts like assembler or hacking and cracking was through friend networks. That in my case, there seemed to be a real protege mentor thing happening. Uh, from reading your case studies, I don't really get that. Was it more of a solitary affair? Can you tell us something about uh, the case studies? Um, sure. I must ask, first of all, what was your first computer, Riley? It was a TRS-80 Model 1 Level 2. Uh-huh, okay. So it really ranged across the, the continuum. Some people were quite isolated and they taught themselves from a book or a magazine and they fiddled around on their own at home and had not that much contact with other people. And I, there are some people whose experiences like that that I, that I describe in the book. Some people, you know, they lived quite remotely. So there's a woman called Fiona Beals who lived in Westport in New Zealand and that's kind of her story. Uh, and she didn't really know that what she was writing was a computer language until she went to high school and got some instruction. Then she went, I know this. <laughs> I've done this before. Matthew Hall, who has become known to us through you know, his recent adult success in the computer games industry, uh, with Crossy Road is probably one of his, his better-known titles. He lived on a sheep farm, you know, out uh, from Horsham in Victoria. So, you know, again, remoteness. But people who were closer in or able to access user groups, they certainly um, got that fellowship and, and ability to trade ideas and stories and ask questions from other, other users. There's a couple of fellas who are longtime friends from New Zealand. Mark Sibley is uh, well known from his uh, Blitz Basic software onwards. And there was a lot of uh, importance for them in the school computer room and trading kind of secrets and insights and, and knowledge and going around to friends' houses after school. And that was quite an important learning circle there. Uh, they didn't like going to user groups as much. And then Vaughan Clarkson described to me something like what it sounds your experience was, and that is he was programming a couple of games for Initially, uh, he had a, an Exidy Sorcerer, but he then was coding for Micro B and, and writing some games that um, were published by Honeysoft for the Micro B. And there was a, an, a man, an elder, who kind of helped him get those games into shape, who was part of the, the Honeysoft team um, up in Brisbane. 
And so there was that kind of a mentoring relationship, I think, and, and you know, learning some of the tricks and, and better ways to do things uh, from him. So yeah, I think people learned in a range of ways. It really just depended on what their situation was. There's a quote in your book in 1978 about the usage of home computers, i.e. the two markets of games and simple business apps. And uh, you discussed the iron wall. I wonder if you could tell us what that is too. And when did the iron wall fall? The person that you're actually referring to, um, who I quote in the book, is Neil Burse, who was a computer journalist in New Zealand and one of the founders of the computer magazine Bits and Bytes. Burse described to me that there were kind of two market sectors in the early period when he was trying to get this magazine up what he termed serious software people and home users. He felt that it was quite challenging to balance the needs and the the expectations of these two sectors of the market. So, for instance, he described that they had a cartoonist who they hired to do the covers of the magazines, but that he was exceedingly savage in his depiction of accountants, portraying them as hawks. He didn't think that they could continue using this because this was an important sector of the, the market, particularly for advertising. And he described that he also had to, they also had to be careful with how much coverage they gave to sort of more popular elements of uh, computing, such as games, because the people who were the serious software people, they were worried about being associated with a magazine that was involved with games. And this, of course, is seen widely in the the kind of moral panics about digital games in the 1980s, you know, in the newspapers. So particularly I did a lot of this research on uh, arcade, you know, scares about what was going on in the arcades in New Zealand in the 80s and late 70s. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting perspective um, that there are these two segments. I argued that there are uh, kind of two parts to the, the computer market as well. You've got the, the high-end Um, machines and you've got the low-end, cheaper machines that are really what I'm dealing with in this book um, that people buy in order to, you know, play with and fiddle around with and often teach themselves programming on. So the the microbees, the the Sinclair computers, you know, the Commodores, etc. And there's, you know, quite a, a difference in price between, you know, buying what it is to buy an IBM or an Apple II and and buying one of these um, these low-end computers. As to your question of when did the iron wall fall, I don't really know. I was thinking about that and um, I'm not entirely sure. I make a, a an argument in the book uh, for the kind of activity that I describe of, of people programming continuing into at least the late 80s. Some of my uh, colleagues um, in uh, particular articles and books have argued that, you know, this kind of activity, this programming activity ceases quite early on in the 80s. In one case, in uh, a Dutch uh, historian uh, argues, you know, with the release of the ZX81, people stopped programming. And I'm like, what? No, <laughs> not in 81. It was just getting going. Everything was just kind of picking up in 1981. Yeah, that, that sounds wrong. And, I mean, there's potentially some difference between different markets, but still it seems far too early to me. Uh, another uh, colleague of mine, Graham Kirkpatrick, argues that there's a big 
shift in 1985. But I, as I portray, you know, there's plenty of evidence for magazines still publishing type-in listings right up until the end of the decade, and so I just don't think that um, you can draw those kind of conclusions from the kinds of evidence that they that they cite. So it keeps it keeps on. People shift uh, from the 8-bit computers to 16-bit computers, you know, gradually, though there is quite a long tail in terms of how long people use these 8-bit computers for. They use them well beyond the time when they are new. Uh, they continue away, you know, chipping away, figuring out, you know, all that they want to know about how they work and what they can do with them. It's a fascination as much as anything. Uh, and so I don't know. There are some attempts to get uptake of um, Commodores, et cetera, in office environments. I'm not sure the extent to which that was successful. It's probably, it, it probably is more the shakeout that happens later on with, um, with IBM and the, and, but, but yeah, in the late eighties, you've got this, this crossover period with eight bit giving way into 16 bit IBMs kind of taking off and IBM compatibles. And, yeah, it probably isn't until the 90s that um, I think that kind of resolved, but that's not really been the focus of my research, so I, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, you're right. The The entire 80s was was uh, an era of homebrew and programming. I, I don't know where he got that from. Uh, what was the, uh, the social and technical impact of user groups on the early scene? People really uh, congregated and... and were drawn to others who had the similar model of computer to them uh, in order to help them solve problems. I'm sure it was also a, a, a highly social, you know, and pleasurable uh, activity as well for people who were just fascinated by these newly arrived machines. In large part, the getting together physically was also about a sharing of, of knowledge and a, and a troubleshooting and a and people would also, um, you know, make peripherals that they would share around or there would be uh, software libraries, public domain software held by many of these user groups that were then available to members. They produced, many of them produced newsletters. In fact, I've recently co-authored a chapter with a student of mine who has a lovely collection of Exidy Sorcerer newsletters from around the world. And we were able to, well, he was able to chart the exchanges between people in different nations who often would also share their newsletters. But the exchanges, yeah, between, you know, send us your high scores, for instance, for this game, and they'd come from very far-flung places. So though these were very locally published user group newsletters, they travelled a long way. And so it's really showing a kind of nascent global network of users for this particular computer, which I don't think is a perspective that we've seen previously. Your book contains a number of case studies that we discussed before. Did the majority of these people go on to being computer professionals later in life or was it uh, more diverse than that? It is quite diverse. They have a facility uh, with computers. Uh, some of them, quite a number of them, did go into the uh, computer game business, but not all. One of my informants uh, became a gastroenterologist, for instance. But I think he described, he described that he was able, for instance, when he was studying to, you know, quickly whip up a database in order to help him with 
the research problem that he was facing or something like this because, you know, he, he, he had a, a very good understanding of what was going on with computing and, and you know, was able to, to deploy that in a range of contexts. So, Melanie, what's your next project? Well, after doing the research with users about what they actually used computers for, I realised that we don't know what else people used computers for. And so I was fortunate enough to be awarded a, a fellowship application from the fellowship, a future fellowship rather, from the Australian Research Council in 2013 to study what I've called the history of creative microcomputing in Australia between 1976 and 1992. So this is a large project that I've been working on for some years. Wow, that, that is cool. Yeah, it's, it's the companion to this book on homebrew and it's really asking the question, all right, we know what hobbyists did and, and people who are interested in games did. What else did people do that with computers when they first became available that was in some way creative? And so I'm not looking at business applications, I'm not looking at banking, but, you know, a whole lot of other stuff is within scope. So it, it includes, um, you know, what artists were doing, what was happening in design. What about early media and computer graphics? Now, computer graphics kind of strays into the high-end stuff, but I feel like, you know, we need to document that history because um, there are some important people who've you know, done some some great stuff uh, from Australia, so I'm trying to capture that. So that's that's underway. I'm still finishing off some of the interviews with with people around the country for that, and the pandemic hasn't helped. But uh, hopefully, I'll I'll be able to get cracking on that book in the next year or so. And then I have uh, two other projects that running at the moment, also funded as linkage projects. So we have the follow on project called Play It Again. Two, which is focused on locally written computer games in Australia from the 1990s. And we're going back and picking up some of the console games as well from the 1980s that we missed. This is a linkage project in collaboration with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and RNET, Australia's academic and research network. So that's a, a really exciting project. We're focusing on about 50 Australian games and doing the history uh, of production and reception and preserving and making these titles accessible. So we'll actually be installing six games from this project at Acme in February 2022. And the sister project to that is called Archiving Australian Media Arts Towards a Method and a National Collection. And this is uh, motivated by similar kinds of concerns in that Media arts has not really been well collected in Australia uh, and Australia has an incredible history of, of artists uh, working with media technologies. For similar reasons to what I initially found in New Zealand, the, the fear of, oh, my goodness, if we collect this, we're going to have to preserve it, how the hell do we do that? I think there's been a, a, a lag in these kind of collections developing. But recently things have been changing. So I've, I've been working with a, a range of organisations for some years on brokering particular media arts organisational archives going into uh, cultural institutions. So we have a range of organisations in different states 
that have now been accepted by jurisdictionally appropriate cultural institutions. So we have Deluxe Media Arts in Sydney that's gone to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Experimenta in Melbourne that's gone to ACME and also the State Library of Victoria. We have ANAT, the Australian Network for Art and Technology in Adelaide that has gone to the State Library of South Australia. And Griffith University Art Museum uh, are also a partner. They used to be known as Griffith Artworks. So that collection is there. So we have really right up and down the eastern seaboard and across to Adelaide now a network of these collections of organisations that often began in the 80s and that have continued to support artists working with a range of media and technology through the decades. And these are incredibly rich and important archives. So it's really, I think, pretty significant that they've now found homes where they're going to be secure. We're helping these organisations to stabilise the media and we're uh, develop, try, well, we're working to try and develop what we're, what we're thinking of as a, as a good practice method for imaging, um, doing interviews with artists, uh, showing the emulated artworks uh, to artists and getting their responses to that and uh, sorting out some of the, the documentary challenges around this kind of interactive media art. So that's what I'm up to at the moment. Well, thank you very much, Melanie. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Riley. It's been great to be with you. The Mystery Thing is the Exidy Sorcerer. It was promoted in Australia by Dick Smith and was quite expensive at the time. Even so, it had a large fan base and many people still have them now, like myself. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help, you can become a member. Make a donation or just join our mailing list via acms.org.au. We also have a Patreon page, which you can find via our name. Ciao.